The Bibles are open this morning to Deuteronomy chapter number five. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible, if you're not sure where it is. There's a pew Bible in front of you. If you need a copy of God's Word, and you'll find our text this morning on page number uh, 141. 141 is where we'll be for a few minutes today. Now, this is the final message in our series within a series on the Ten Commandments. We're actually in a larger series of studies on the important book of the Bible called Deuteronomy, a book that means second law, and it is, of course, a second stating, a reformatting, not a new law, uh, but a redistribution of the law, so to speak, by Moses, who's nearing the end of his life, uh, to this second generation of the children of Israel, first generation having died off in the desert because of disobedience to God, 40 years of wandering in the arid sands of the Sinai Desert. Now the second generation is being strategically moved by the sovereign hand of God and placed in strategic locations for the purpose of finally moving into the land that God had promised all the way back to that first Jew whose name was Abraham. And of course, Moses doesn't want the second generation to make the same mistakes that their forebears did, and so he's recapitulating the law for them, helping them to understand it, and the critical nature of not only knowing what it is and properly understanding it, but of embracing it, and being committed to obeying the commands of God that he's giving them here. Deuteronomy is just such an important book in the Bible, one of the ones that Jesus quoted more often if not the most often than any other passage of Scripture during his three-year public ministry. Well, today we're going to look at the last of the Ten Commandments in our larger study of these important commands of God. It's in verse 21 of chapter 5, and here's what it says. <clears throat> and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. Thou shalt not covet. May I speak to you for a few minutes this morning on the subject, winning the battle with covet 19. Greatest sermon title in the last 30 years. Now, this is a contagion, this thing called covetousness is. You may be sitting here today thinking, thank God I'm not a murderer, and thank God I'm not an adulterer, and thank God I've never broken into a store and stolen anything. Thank God I've gotten victory over these Ten Commandments. Well, now we come to the last one. And every one of us is zapped guilty when we read this one. I mean, think about it. If coveting was a problem for the people of God out there in the desert that didn't have anything more than the clothes on their back 3,500 years ago, how much more dangerous and how much more perilous for the people of God today living in the Western world of the 21st century? We got more toys we got more 
things at our disposal. We're living in nicer houses, driving nicer cars, wearing nicer clothes than any generation in all of human history. And yet the reality is, I read a survey just several days ago that indicated that 70% of all women ages 16 to 25 identify, you know what the favorite pastime they identified? 70% of all women 16 to 25, recreational shopping. That's a pastime, evidently. I like to go to baseball games. Some like to do other things. And you know, that's something that all of us really do battle with. I mean, I, I know that if more than two or three days goes by and I don't notice a charge where Judy's bought something for that grand boy of ours, I send her a get well card because something is bound to be wrong. Well, let's talk a little bit about what it means to covet and why coveting is a problem. What we can do to protect ourselves from it and what we can do to break free from it if we find ourselves in the midst of it. Question number one is simply this. What does it mean to covet? Well, let me give you a simple two-word definition for coveting, uncontrolled desire. That's all in the world coveting is. It's uncontrolled desire. Desire. And let me make a statement up front. Not all desire is bad. There are a lot of desires in your life that are actually good, healthy, profitable. The desire for food is a good thing given to us by God because you've got to have it to survive. You've got to have it to fill your tank with energy. But it can sure go bad if there's an uncontrolled desire for it. God gives us a desire for sex. We're physical beings, and that's a good thing, but there's a problem with it if it becomes an uncontrolled desire. So there are many built-in desires that are good. The desire for happiness, the desire for excitement, the desire to be thrilled, the desire for fulfillment. In fact, the Bible says that in 1 Timothy 6. God richly provides us everything for our what? For our enjoyment, for us to enjoy. So desires in and of themselves are not bad. But desires that are directed in the wrong way, desires that are fundamentally selfish, desires that cause you to want something that belongs to somebody else, or the de desires that cause you to be constantly unhappy with your supposed lot in life, that cause you to be ungrateful for what you do have, or desires that cause you to compromise the clear teaching of the Word of God in action or in attitude. That, brothers and sisters, is what the Bible refers to by coveting. And the command makes it very clear. Coveting is not just limited to money or even the things money can buy, like your neighbor's Maserati or something like that. When I was a kid growing up, that's kind of how it was framed. It was just like this desire for shinier and better toys. But it's far beyond that. You can unhealthily covet influence. In an unhealthy way, you can covet fame or power or authority or control or as the text says here, somebody else's boyfriend or girlfriend or somebody else's wife or their husband. So coveting is simply desire that's run amok. It's uncontrolled. It's fundamentally selfish. It's misdirected. There's no desire in that desire for the greater glory of God. It's all about what you want and what you think you deserve. And God says that is a problem. But why is coveting a problem? 
Well, that's question number two. How many of you have heard of high blood pressure or hypertension being called the silent killer, right? I can remember the commercials that came on when I was a little boy that referred to hypertension as the silent killer. You know, you can have high blood pressure, not even know you have. Now, your wife or your husband might know you have it, right? Because you're popping off all the time or red in the face or apoplectic or whatever. But the reality is sometimes you don't even know you have it. And if you're not careful, it can take your life without a whole lot of symptoms at all. That's the way coveting works. See, that's the thing. You may be sitting here today, and it's the, um, the million miles away from your thoughts. It's become so ingrained in our way of life in Western material America. This is what good Americans do. They pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and they strive for the American dream, which is all about money. It's all about bigger this and, and better that, none of which you can take with you beyond the grave. And so most of us, because of our environment, are eaten up <clears throat> with the infection of COVID-19, and we don't even know it. Over the years, let me tell you, if the walls of my study could speak, people coming in, wanting to visit with their pastor, and I encourage it, we're here to help you, want to talk with their pastor about various things that, that are going on in their life and problems in their marriage or problems with their work or problems with their spiritual life or discuss a problem of some kind, even beyond that. And as I think about that, as I think about all the different kinds of subjects that I've talked with people about over the last 25, 30 years, I can't remember one time, not a single time, not a speck of time where somebody came into my office and said, Pastor, I am eaten up with covetousness. It's never happened, best I can remember. And yet maybe it's a conversation that all of us need to have because it really does strike a blow to all of us. I'm telling you, it's a lot like COVID-19, isn't it? I mean, everybody's sick, but nobody ever seemed to think it's COVID, right? How many of you ever talked to somebody? I'm so thankful, man. I've gone through this whole last two years and I've never gotten COVID. I've had people tell me that. And I said, well, have you been sick at all? Oh, 10, 12 times over the last two years, but it's never been COVID. <laughs> okay, here's the thing. You've had COVID at least half a dozen times and you've infected about 30,000 people. God bless you. <laughs> Come on. But be it COVID or covet, it's always something that somebody else has. But it's bypassed me. And yet the truth is, most of us, all of us in here have contracted some variant of COVID-19. What are the symptoms? Let me give you several. The first is an unclean heart. I think it's interesting that this command is last on the list of the Ten Commandments. You know why? Because it sums up the first nine. If you break one of the first, time, uh, first nine commandments, it's because you want something more than you want to do God's will. I mean, it all issues from a heart that's given up by pride. The other commands all deal with actions, but this one deals with the heart. This one is on the inside. It deals with attitude. Coveting is a heart matter. Whenever you violate any of the other 
of God's commands, it's because of something you desire that you would rather have other than God's very best for your life. The Apostle Paul was a man who wrestled with all those kinds of things in his early days. He seemed to have it all. He was a rabbinic Jew trained in the finest schools. His father was a Pharisee. He became a Pharisee. He had position. He had power. He had authority. And I can imagine him as a young man in the Jewish faith going right down the list of the Ten Commandments feeling pretty good about himself. Idols? Me? No way. I worship the one true and living God. Take God's name in vain? I'd never even consider it. <clears throat> never think about it. Keep the Sabbath day holy every Sabbath day. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, I'm honoring the Lord's day. Check. And then Paul makes his way down all through the Ten Commandments until he gets to the last one. And he reads the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. And then he makes a statement about himself that you can read in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, which he wrote. Here's what he says happened. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had said, you shall not what? Because he it was the command of God written in the sacred scriptures that let him know that there are certain kinds of behavior that are not pleasing to God. That's why God saw to it that these were written in stone. Because unless and until they're written down and then properly communicated, how would you ever know that it was wrong to have another God beside God or to take God's name in vain or whatever the commandment might be? Now, why, giving us that understanding, why would Paul mention this last commandment to make his argument instead of another one? Why did he say out of all of the 10 that he could have mentioned, why did he say, I would not have known what it meant to covet if there had not been a law that said, you shall not covet. Why this one and not another one? Because this one knocked him out. He might check off all the other ones, even though Jesus would later teach him he couldn't even do that. But this one got him. How did he know it? How did he know this violation of the command not to covet made him a sinner before holy God? He knew it largely because there was a command that said it. Do not covet. And because he did covet and he knew he coveted, he knew he was guilty. He wasn't as righteous as he thought he was. The same is true for you and me. Maybe you can say you've never committed adultery physically, but have you ever wanted to? Maybe you can never say, or maybe you can, can say that you never took someone from something, uh, somebody else. You never stole, but did you ever want to? Did you ever want something that belonged to Somebody else? Maybe you've never cursed or abused the name of God verbally. But have you? don't even answer that because I know you have. <laughs> you've wanted to, maybe even thought it in your mind. See, the last command indicts all of us before a holy God. Because it condemns us at the point of our heart. 
at the point of our motivation. And see, 2,500 years later, or 1,500 years later, Jesus is going to come along, and he's going to say the same thing about murder and about adultery. He's going to make all of them a matter of the heart. But this one always has been. That's what Jesus is driving at in Mark 7 and verse 21 when he said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. So coveting is a problem because it springs from the heart and it reveals the true condition of the heart. <clears throat> Another symptom is an unfulfilled life. An unfulfilled life. Most of us tend to be very hard by nature to satisfy. And you know what? All the manufacturers and service providers in the United States of America know that you're hard to satisfy, which is why they constantly try to make their advertisements so appealing. Hamburgers always look better on commercials. Right? Cars always look more comfortable on commercials. They, that's their desire to make you more desirable for, of what they're trying to sell, make you more dissatisfied with your lot in life. So they have a better chance to sell you their product if they can make you miserable because you don't have it. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 5, whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And that's the thing about stuff. I mean, stuff can bring happiness for a while. A lot of people say things will never make you happy. I, I don't know that I agree with that. I think they can make you happy. What I would agree with is they can't make you happy for very long because the shine is going to wear off and the leather is going to crack, you know, and, and the new is going to wear off. That new car that you used to be so proud of, change oil every thousand miles, burn premium gas in it, Vacuum, refuse to let anybody even think about eating in that car. Pretty soon, man, it becomes Tennessee trash. <laughs> and you don't care anymore about it. Why? Because the new wore off. Now you're ready for something else. You're thinking about, this is when coveting uh, sneaks in. You, now you're thinking about what you wish you had. Dissatisfied. This is why things can bring happiness, but only in a fleeting way. They can't bring lasting happiness. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. You put your trust in things that for a time can thrill, but can never fulfill. Things can thrill, say that with me. Things can thrill, but never fulfill. That's right. Notice third, that there are a number of harmful effects about coveting. One of them is fatigue. In order to have, 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 people have to work, 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 and go, go, go. So we join this challenge called the rat race, which is a race that nobody ever wins. Keep up this frenetic pace in order to get what we want. The result's a bunch of worn out people, tired all the time, so busy making a living, they never get around to making a life. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You can be so wrapped up in making a living and acquiring things, you never make a life. 
Solomon came to the end of his life. Y'all remember Ecclesiastes? Wisest man so-called that ever lived, had everything money could buy, treasures of gold and silver, horses by the thousands, palace that was larger than the temple of God itself that he himself had built. Solomon had it all, yet he comes to the end of his life having everything that any human could ever want. What was his final evaluation? Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was what? Say it out loud. All was vanity, a striving after wind, something that you can never capture. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Fatigue, you'll wear yourself out. Another harmful effect is debt. Oh my. Some of y'all sitting there thinking, just skip right on over this and preach it. Let that one alone. <laughs> the average American, I'm told, saves about 4% of his income. Average American has about $4,000 in the bank, and that's it, $4,000 total. 35% of Americans have less than $1,000. So what that means is six and a half ever 10 Americans couldn't put their hands on 1000 bucks if their life depended on it without borrowing it. And the problem with that is, is that more than half of Americans spend more than they earn every year. 50% of Americans spend more than they make in a single year. Nearly $100,000 in debt is the average American. And the root of that is materialism. We want more. There's some things you go into debt. I mean, I went into debt to purchase my house. Oh, but that's an appreciating, it's debt. Debt is debt is debt. Some is smart debt and some is foolish debt. But if you owe it, it's debt. And I still owe a little bit on my house. And I wouldn't make an argument that it's a sin to go into debt to buy a car. But you got to be very careful with it. And most people in this country go into needless debt. And it's spending money they don't have to keep up with people they don't like. Amen. Amen. It's a problem. It's a symptom. It's a symptom of this heart condition known as covetousness. And then coveting inevitably results in conflict. What happens in that home that's got about that much money saved and owes about this much money? Conflict. James 4, verse 1 and following. What causes what? Quarrels. And what causes what? Fights among you. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, you could substitute the word covet for the word desire right there. And it'd have exactly the same meaning. You covet and do not have, so you murder. Whether it's character assassination or the real deal sometimes. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. For years the number one cause, number one cause, and second in him close, the number one cause for marital tension and divorce in the United States is financial conflict. I'd like to know how many couples I've dealt with on this very matter. Can't manage money. 
till death do us part was the vow. But the reality is many times it's till debt do us part because there are just too many things that we think we cannot live without. Fatigue, debt, conflict. There's another effect and it's worry, anxiety, stress. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke over to the, some of our wonderful young mothers over at Mom Life. That's a great ministry, by the way. I was a little nervous being in the room with all these women. I was the only guy in the whole room. That middle schooler, y'all don't scare me. Middle schoolers and all women, that's a different story. <laughs> and I spoke to them on this very subject, winning the battle with worry, winning the battle with fear. There's a lot to cause worry and tension and, and fear. Well, listen, when you're head over heels in debt, here's the thing. The more you have, the more you have to take care of. Man, you got to call the security people to put that system in. You've got to call the insurance company to make sure you're properly covered. And Lord help you when they tell you what the premium's going to be on it. How am I going to get it? How am I going to keep it? How am I going to protect it? How am I going to avoid paying taxes on it? The more you have, the more you tend to worry about. I read an article in preparing for this message that I found in 2019 from the New York Times that revealed a direct correlation between insomnia and the amount of money you make. Did you know that the more money you make, the more trouble you tend to have sleeping? It's absolutely true. There may be a lot of reasons for that. But the more we have, the more we what? Spend. And the more we acquire through our spending, the more we have to take care of. And the more we have to take care of, the more we have to worry about. And apparently, I don't know why, that keeps a bunch of people up at night. This is the scourge of COVID-19. It has all kinds of symptoms. Produces very little benefit. The question now becomes, what do we do about it? Or... Is there an effective vaccine? Somebody say amen. <laughs> oh, listen, I found one right here in the Word of God. That's a good place for an amen too. How do I get victory over COVID-19? Well, I'm going to tell you, this is a discipleship matter. It's a discipleship matter. There's some things that you have to learn and some things that you have to apply from God's Word if you want to break the chains of a covetous heart. The top of the list is learn contentment. You have to learn to be content. Paul says that. That's actually a statement right out of Philippians chapter 4. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. And the key word there, I think, is the word learned. Because Paul makes it clear that that wasn't something that just came naturally to him. He had to learn how to live with contentment. Because it doesn't just happen. We're not contented people by nature because sin has broken us. So you have to learn it. You have to be a student of the Word and know what the Bible says about the things that we're talking about today. And then you take practical steps in order to learn the value of contentment. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, you don't have to find your security in money and the things money can buy. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews threw that statement in there that the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's why you don't have to go around chasing after the wrong things all the time. Ultimately, Jesus wants our security to be found in him, in him alone. And he'll give us what we need in order to live a life that's full of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. That's really the secret to a satisfied life, learning to be content with what you have. Are you, are you content with the knowledge of your salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you content with your relationship with God? Are you content with your discipleship walk with the Lord Jesus? Are you content with the family that God has given you? Are you content in your marriage? Are you content with your church and your church family? Are you content with the friends and the relationships that God has given you outside of your family? Have you learned to be content with the work that God has given you, with your job, with your material blessings, whether they be large or relatively not so much? Learning to be content with what you have is always a matter of trust. The question is, do you really trust God to meet all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus? And can you be content with having God meet the needs of your life rather than the relative greeds of your life? And there is a difference between the two. God's never promised to give you everything you want. He has promised to meet all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's Philippians chapter 4 as well. My God shall supply all your need because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you really trust God? You have to learn contentment. Second, you have to learn God's plan. And God's plan for your life, first and foremost, is to discover that you were created to have a relationship with him. The heavenly dream is the motivator for the family of God, not the American dream. Now, I'm not down on the American dream. I, I Listen, I train my kids to, to strive and to excel and to become and, and work to, to make the the most that they can in life, I think that's a very healthy way to live. But it can run amok if you're not careful. And the American dream can cast a large shadow over the kingdom dream. God's plan, first and foremost, has very little or nothing to do with what kind of house you live in or what kind of automobiles you drive or what kind of clothes you wear or what kind of trips you're able to make. The purpose of your life is to walk in harmony with God He's engineered you so that the greatest needs of your life can only be found by knowing him personally and walking in a daily relationship with him. The world will never satisfy you. Only God can do that. And so his plan for your life is that you learn not only to trust him, but to find your total satisfaction in him. That's the only cure for a heart that covets 
The greatest passage on worry and the passage I shared with those young mothers a few days ago is Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says it. Why do you worry about your life? Why do you worry about the things that you wear or the clothes on your back? God takes care of the sparrows. He'll take care of you. God majestically clothes the lilies of the field and are you not of greater value than the flowers in the field? And they don't get worried. You know, the, 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 the lilies don't worry about what the tulips look like and the tulips don't worry about what the roses look like. They couldn't care less they just become they just become what they were created to become without being stressed out by what every other flower in the botanical garden is doing for crying out loud and he says oh you of little faith why do you worry about these things do you not know that you're the pinnacle of creation Do you not know that God has pronounced very good when he looked at your life after making you in his divine image? Are you not of greater value than these? O you of little faith. And then he comes down to verse 33 there in Matthew 6. And he gives us the wonderful summary statement. But seek ye first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these what? And all these things, these things that you tend to covet over and chase after and make your life all about, all of these kinds of things, not not completely all of those things, but all of those things that you tend to stress and worry about in God's way and in God's time and in God's quantity will be given to you as well. But the predicate is, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So winning the battle with covet 19 means learning God's plan and being satisfied with it. And then also you have to learn to be thankful. People who tend to have a problem with coveting are usually ungrateful people. And we need to be grateful and we need to be thankful for what we do have and not focus so much on what we don't have. Did you know that some form of the word thank or thanks or thanksgiving or grateful is found over 70 times in the New Testament alone? In everything, give what? Thanks. In all circumstances, give thanks. It's a constant reminder. All of those thanks, 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 gratitude, grateful, constant reminders that a a critical remedy, a crucial remedy for breaking the grip of selfishness, the grip of materialism, is learning to notice how God has blessed you and being very quick to say thank you for all of the blessings of life. Several years ago, I was leaving my previous church. This was many, many years ago. And everybody else had gone and I was leaving and the main phone line rang and it's one of those deals like you see on television. I was running out the door. We were getting ready to drive to Springfield, Missouri and running out the door and I was already a little bit behind. Everybody was in the car waiting on me and I thought, do I stop and answer it or do I just keep right on rolling? And for some reason I thought, no, I need to answer this. And so I stopped and answered it and it was a church member that was calling and and, uh, no, it wasn't a church member. It was somebody in the community that knew us. And he knew of somebody, uh, an elderly lady that was a cancer patient 
And he said, you know, she's, she's practically destitute. She doesn't have any family, and she, she can't provide for herself. Is there any way the church could provide her with some groceries? And I thought, well, sure, we can do that. Uh, and that would have been me because of, like, nobody else there. And I said, well, give me your address. I had to do it the old-fashioned way, no cell phone, no Google map. So I had to get a map out because I wasn't sure where that was. And, I, and when I got in the car, I said, look, we're just going to have to slow down. We need to take this lady some food. So we ran over to Glenn's Market, loaded her up, two or three sacks of groceries with some basic staples. And, and we bought them, put them in a paper sack, drove it out to them. I mean, she lived down in, in, in what we called up in southwest Missouri a holler. I mean, she lived in a holler. And I pulled up to this place, and I could tell this is, not a, this is not a healthy place. And again, no cell phone, and I said, I'm going to go through, not the door, because they had basically an old blanket hanging over the door. That was the door. And I said, I'm going in here. If I'm not back out here in 10 minutes, <laughs> that's what I told her, honest to Pete. If I'm not back here in 10 minutes, get out of here call the police, and send them to this address. And so I went in carrying the bags, and it was just a little old lady in there suffering from breast cancer that would eventually take her life. It was really all over her body by that time. I'm telling you, the smell nearly knocked me out. If there was one cat walking around on furniture and on the counters, there was a dozen of them. In fact, I stayed for a few minutes, tried not to rush out. It was the most unbelievable poverty. I mean, I've been on the mission field and seen poverty. I didn't think that that kind of poverty existed in the United States. I didn't think it was here. It's here. And I remember praying for that woman, and right in the middle of my prayer, I felt fangs go into my chest as a cat jumped up on my chest and affixed himself permanently. I would show you the scars. It would be embarrassing, right? Right there. And I left with tears, big old tears rolling down my face. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. And I was convicted about how many times I had complained about things I did not have. When in that moment, I felt like a very young man who really didn't have a whole lot, to be honest with you, but I felt like the most blessed man in the world. See, the problem is we fail to see just how good God has blessed us, just how good we have it. And we fail to say thank you. This is why the remedy for COVID-19 is a healthy dose of a prayer life that constantly says, thank you, Jesus. I may not have a lot, not a lot in life, but what I've got is way more than what I deserve. And I thank God for it. You learn contentment. You learn God's plan. You learn to be thankful. And then finally, you put legs to all of that learning and you learn to be generous. See, materialism feeds off what you get, but contentment feeds off what you give away. Giving breaks the grip of materialism in your life, which is why Jesus cautioned many times, take care, watch out, be on guard against all forms of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance 
of his possessions. In fact, Jesus taught us that every material thing we cherish in this life is either going to rust, waste away, decay, be stolen. He said, where your treasure is, there your what? Heart will be also. So God's plan for your life and mine, contrary to building an empire of things on this earth, Jesus said, instead, lay up for yourselves what? Treasures in heaven. I preach a lot of funerals. A verse I use a lot in funerals is found in the 14th chapter of Revelation, which simply says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. For they shall cease from their labors and their deeds will follow after them. The only thing that's going to follow after you in heaven are the things you've done to glorify and honor the precious name of the Christ who died for you. Your house isn't going to follow you to heaven. Your cars aren't going to follow you to heaven. Your IRAs, your bank accounts, your certificates of deposit will not follow you to heaven. The only thing that you're going to have awaiting you at the judgment seat of Christ is what you've done for Christ that's already been sent ahead. There's no way to lay up treasures for yourself in heaven apart from learning to give and learning to be generous because that's the only thing that can break the grip of greed and covetousness in a person's life. Let me just conclude with this one question. What are you living for today? What are you living for? Who are you living for? What's driving your life? What are the priorities of your life? When it comes time to die, and you stand in the very presence of God, the question on the table then is on what basis will the Lord Jesus Christ evaluate your life? By what you acquired, he won't do it. He'll evaluate your life on how you've used what was his all the time. Can you honestly say, you know what, preacher? I'm truly content with my life, and I thank God for it. Some of you here today, you're not content with life because you don't have Jesus in it. There is no contentment apart from Jesus Christ. Life will always be about you. It'll always be about what you want, what you desire. You'll be the center of the whole universe apart from Jesus moving in and situating himself on the very throne of your life. Contentment is only found in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And some people in the room today, the first priority of your life is to turn away from yourself, repent of your sin, turn toward Jesus and trust him to do what only he can do, move into your life and give you everything that you actually need for life today and for life in the age to come. And he's the only one who can do it. He's the only one that can give you real happiness, real joy, real fulfillment, real peace, and real life. I'm here to tell you this morning, COVID-19 is a real deal. And when it comes to winning the battle with it, don't be fooled. There is a remedy. One and his name is Jesus Christ. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.